0: And uh, this morning we are in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, so find 1 Samuel in your Bible, find chapter 11, and then uh, stand with me, and let's honor the Word of God, let's read it together. We're going to read the entire chapter, it's fairly lengthy, but I think this will give us some good context for the message this morning. Let's read it together. Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you, thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel." The elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What is the matter uh, with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he had heard these words, and he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying... Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. He numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. They said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Then the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. The next morning Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, both Old Testament and New Testament. And Lord, we know it is uh, equally inspired in the Old Testament as it is in the New, and that we can learn your truth from both uh, testaments. And so, Lord, we uh, thank you that even in this historical narrative, we can understand your purposes that we can see your sovereign hand at work in history. And, Lord, even as the first king of Israel, Saul, was uh, established by you to uh, govern your people so we can uh, learn principles by which we can live, even in our day and time, uh, many, many years removed from that. And so, Lord, we thank you that your word never changes That it is established forever, and that uh, is because of that, that uh, it is uh, applicable for every generation. And so, Lord, we thank you for the foundation of the Old Testament and uh, the truth, the doctrinal truth of the New Testament by which we live. So, Lord, we pray once again this morning that our hearts would be focused on you, that our hearts would be in tune with what you have for us. And that uh, we would uh, not allow distractions to keep us from what you have for us this morning. And that our hearts would be focused on you as we worship, as we express our love and devotion to you. And Lord, uh, we pray that everything that is said and done in this place today would be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have great news for you this morning. The Broncos are going to win the Super Bowl. Of course, you can always say that before the regular season begins, right? The future looks bright. They haven't lost any real games. We just know all the draft picks are going to hit. There's no reason not to think we're going to go all the way. I hope you know I'm being facetious this morning. We all know it's not how you start, but how you end that counts. And be that as it may, this morning we're going to look at Saul's promising start. In our text this morning, we're going to see where Saul began his reign with an incredible victory. The theme of this chapter is salvation or deliverance. The Hebrew root word yasa, which means to save or to deliver, appears three times in this passage. It is here where we see the newly appointed king of Israel delivers the people from great suffering and defeat. At the end of the last chapter, we saw some who were saying, how can this fellow save us? In this chapter, we see the answer to that question, it is through the power of God's Spirit. And perhaps we should just back up for just a moment and review what we have seen so far. Saul has been anointed by Samuel as the first king of Israel. And his choice by God has been confirmed in a number of different ways, not the least of which is his joining in a procession of prophets, prophesying with them. The scripture tells us that at that time he was changed into a new man, empowered by the Spirit for the work God had called him to do. And yet, when it came time for Samuel to announce him as the new king, he was found hiding among the equipment for fear of the great responsibility of being king. On the other hand, when they finally found him and pulled him out of hiding, we're told he stood head and shoulders above all the rest of the people. Samuel said, look, there's no one like him, and all the people shouted, long live the king. Ah, but not all of them were so excited. A few worthless scoundrels despised him and refused to bring him any gifts. They rejected him and would not accept accept him as their God-appointed king. Saul's reaction? He just remained silent. He believed that there would come a time when he would be able to prove himself, and it is here in chapter 11 where we see that take place. And by the way, that is one of the best ways... To deal with criticism when it comes your way. Just keep quiet and wait for the opportunity for the criticism to be proven wrong. That's what Saul did. So far, so good. Saul is looking very wise here at the beginning. He's getting off to a good start. Now, there are four main paragraphs in this chapter, although they're not equal in length. And so we're going to have four main points this morning. Uh, The PowerPoint people were disappointed it wasn't going to be seven or eight, but it's going to be four this morning. And the first thing we see is the reproach of submission. While the new king is out plowing his father's fields... Trouble is brewing east of the Jordan River. A brutal Ammonite strongman named Nahash is wreaking havoc. He has besieged a small town named Jabesh-Gilead, which was a fortified settlement about 20 miles south of the Sea of Galilee and two miles west of the Jordan River. In fact, it is likely that Nahash has terrorized the entire area east of the Jordan River. There is some additional material that was found in one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that, if it had been included in this account, would come before verse 1 of chapter 11. And here's how the additional information reads. Now Nahash, the king of the Ammonites had been oppressing the Gadites and Reubenites grievously, gouging out the right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. No men of the Israelites who were across the Jordan remained, whose eye Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But 7,000 men had escaped from the Ammonites and entered into Jabesh, Gilead. Now, you don't have that in your Bible, but it was included in at least some of the manuscripts that were found at the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we can't say if this material was somehow dropped out of the original text, and we can't really count this as inspired Scripture, but it is certainly interesting. And this tells us from a historical perspective that the terror was much wider than just this little town. I think we can treat this material much like what we would glean from the non-inspired Jewish historian Josephus. In fact, Josephus also has material in his antiquities that presupposes a trans-Jordanian rampage by Nahash. So, this is at least historically verified. At any rate, we know that Nahash is threatening Jabesh Gilead. And the residents there are not going to just sit around and wait for this brutal attack to come. They know they need help. And amazingly, Nahash is so arrogant that he allows them. Seven days to go and get some help if they can find it. Look at verse 1 again. Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on one occasion that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you, thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel. Now, the putting out of the right eye was obviously a very barbaric practice in the ancient Near East. This type of mutilation was intended to ensure permanent subservience because it would essentially make these men... Incapable of fighting, not only would it greatly impede the soldier's depth perception and peripheral vision, but since most people are right-handed, the sword would be carried in the right hand and the shield would be in the left, and that would mean that the left eye would be blocked by the shield. But the main point here is, you can't fight what you can't see. Oh, but there was much more to this. Nahash's primary reason for wanting to pluck out their right eyes was to bring reproach to the people of Israel. This was an anti-Semitic mutilation. Davis writes, his delight in heaping disgrace upon Israel. It was such a thrill for him, that is Nahash, to slowly turn the screws of humiliation on the Jews. The Ammonites and the Moabites had for a long time resented Israel's possession of this territory. The Ammonites were the descendants of Lot, And during the days of the judges, Jephthah had humbled them severely. Now, from their perspective, it was time to return the favor. Jabesh-Gilead was right next to Ammonite territory, so they were in much peril from this attack. But notice the pride and arrogance of Nahash here. Verse 3, And the elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Now, we're not specifically told that Nahash agreed to this, but the fact that he did not immediately attack them indicates that he was so sure of himself and his belief that no one would come to their aid that he consented to their request. In fact, watching them squirm was all part of his fun and games. One author wrote that Nahash should relish cruelty, should not surprise us. We can hardly expect otherwise from a race of depraved sinners. Now, we can debate as various scholars have done, whether the residents of Jabesh-Gilead were right in seemingly knuckling under Nahash's demands without a fight. But the point here is that they're in desperate trouble. They're in major trouble. Nahash wants to heap disgrace on Israel. And in this, we see a picture of the world's desire to attack the people of God in any age. In fact, this arrogant hatred never ceases. There are still many people today who have an Ammonite mindset. And their constant goal is to maim and destroy the people of God. Of course, Jesus warned us the warned us of this reality in John 15. He said in John 15:8, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. The word, if there, does not mean that they may or they may not. It means they will and when they do. The apostle John wrote in 1 John 3:13, Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. The world's going to hate you. You just need to know that up front. This kind of arrogant opposition from the world is sure to come. But we are promised ultimate victory in Christ. Now, there's not likely anybody today that is trying to gouge out your right eye. But there are those who would love to attack you as a Christian... There are those who would love to see the church destroyed and the things of God uh, done away with. And there are those who would attack the people of God any way they can. Today, they may do it with more sophisticated, less barbaric ways, but it's the very same kind of thing that we often encounter in the world today. But go on to verse 4. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Notice that the messengers are not looking for Saul. He is not viewed as a savior or deliverer at this point in time. In fact, by many he's not even viewed as much of a king. Verse 5 tells us he's out in the field behind the oxen. So these people are not really looking for help from him, but they speak their message of appeal to the people of Gibeah. And we're told all the people in the city lifted up their voices and wept. This might be because they were afraid they would be next. But notice they did not immediately volunteered to go and help. However, in verse 5, we see a different reaction. So secondly, we see the response of Saul. Look at verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Verse 6, then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. Now, I've seen preachers who have built an entire sermon on this verse and the idea of dealing with anger. That's not the point here, folks. His anger is likely righteous indignation, over the brutal attack against God's people. But the point is that the Holy Spirit came upon Saul in such a way that enabled him to become the deliverer of Israel. Under the Old Testament dispensation, the Holy Spirit did not permanently indwell believers, but he did come upon certain individuals temporarily to accomplish God's purpose of deliverance, etc. This is what's happening here. The main message here is that the Spirit of God made all the difference. If you go on in this text, you see that because of this, Saul was able to marshal the entire nation of Israel, smash into Nahash's camp in the middle of the night and surprised the daylights out of the Ammonites. The enemy is totally routed and Israel gains a great victory. But we can't miss the main point that it was the power of the Spirit that brought all this about. And we can see this If we diagram this text, and that's technical, and I'm not going to go into that, but if you do that, you discover that verse 6 is right in the center of the text. It is the hub of this passage. The central theme of this account is the difference the Spirit of God makes. That is still true today. The only difference is that today we have the Spirit of God permanently indwelling each believer. We have the very same kind of power that brought about this incredible victory working in us on a daily basis. But notice some details in this text. Notice how the author of this book depicts Saul as a sort of super judge. He is painted here as a mixture of several of the judges. First, he is presented as kind of a second Samson, as the Spirit of God rushes on him. The Hebrew word selah, which means to rush upon, is only used of Samson and Saul. It is true that the Holy Spirit enabled all the judges, but only these two are described in this way. The word Selah is not used of any of the others. It is only used in connection with Samson and with Saul. In fact, this word is used three times of Saul, clearly stating that the Spirit of God rushed upon him. It was used three times of Samson, and now three times of Saul. So what is this implying? That there are shades of the mighty power of Samson on Saul as he goes into this battle. Now, he may not go out with the jawbone of a donkey and mow Nahash down, but he does go out with the same kind of power that God gave to him. Then notice that Saul divides his troops into three squads. Verse 11 tells us, Saul put the people in three companies. That sounds a lot like what Gideon did. This also helps paint the picture of Saul as a super judge with all the qualities of all the judges rolled into one. And notice what Saul did in verse 7. And he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. This is very similar to what happened in the last episode of the Judges, although there it was a concubine instead of an ox. And in that case, it was to rally Israel to fight against a rebellious city in Israel, but here it is to rally all the troops in Israel to fight against a foreign enemy. And then we should note that Saul is referred to here as a savior. The Hebrew word for savior was used of both Othniel and Ehud in the book of Judges. Here it's used of Saul. So what's the point in all this? It is to show what the Spirit of God can accomplish. The author of this book is saying that the Spirit of God was able to take this shy, hesitating farmer and turn him into a super judge. This is the difference the Spirit makes. In our day and time, the Spirit of God still makes all the difference. In the same way that the Spirit of God can take some uneducated fishermen and turn them into the very bedrock of the Christian faith, so he can still today take a shy, uneducated person and turn him or her into a powerhouse for God's glory. The Spirit of God is still in the business of doing that. No, we're not the first king of Israel as Saul was. But we are indwelt by the very same spirit that enabled him to deliver Israel from this barbaric threat. And notice something else from this account. If we go back into the history that is recorded in the book of Judges, we recognize that Gibeah where Saul lived and where these people come for help, was once destroyed. Not by foreign enemies, but by the people of Israel. This took place because Gibeah had become like Sodom and Gomorrah. In Judges 19-21, through 21, we read this despicable story of how sexual perverts ended up abusing a woman all night until she died. And the Bible tells us there was no repentance and there was no sorrow over this sin, not only in Gibeah, but in all the tribe of Benjamin. And this tribe in Israel had become so rebellious and so insistent that Gibeah's perverts were in the right, that they actually entered into a civil war against the other tribes. As a result, this city was completely destroyed. And yet, by the time we get to this account in 1 Samuel 11, the very salvation of God would come from this city. What happened? Who would have thought that anything good could ever come out of Gibeah. It's just another example of God's grace. And how he brings light out of darkness and how the power of the Spirit makes all the difference. God always has a remnant. And in this case, the remnant from Gibeah repopulated the city, and God then used this place as the source of his salvation. This should be a powerful reminder to us. That no place is beyond His transforming power and no person is beyond His ability to save. And listen, don't just think that God's grace is found only in the New Testament. It's also seen all throughout the Old Testament as well. Just a couple more details from the text before we move on. The fact that Saul was still involved in farming at this time indicates that he's still humble in his assessment of himself. Remember, he has already been anointed king by Samuel, and he has already been publicly proclaimed as the king, and yet he's not puffed up with pride. Now, that will come later unfortunately but at this point he's still content to do manual labor as a common man notice also that Saul's anger in this case was a good anger because it motivated him to take action sinful anger just blows off steam but righteous anger usually results in some sort of positive action taken as a result. And we see here that Saul's anger became a courageous fire that was kindled in his heart that led to a bold move and resulted in a great deliverance of his people. Let's move thirdly to the retaliation suggested. An interesting exchange took place after the victory was complete. Look at verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Remember, these were the worthless scoundrels who said, What can this man do for us? Now he has shown what he can do, so there are some who are saying, these men deserve to die. They refused to accept Saul as king. They did not honor him or bring him a gift, so we should bring them out and just put them to death. Now this is secular wisdom, but a spirit-filled man does not respond this way. Saul is getting off to a truly good start. And he reacts to this suggestion exactly as he should have. Look at verse 13. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. What a fantastic answer. This is exactly what Saul should have said. He said, nobody's going to die today. Why, Saul? Because God himself has given this great victory. Israel cannot afford to miss the point. Salvation came, not because Israel now had a king, but because the Spirit of God overwhelmed the enemy. In other words, it's not the institution of the the monarchy that brought deliverance, but the power of the Spirit. And listen, we in the church cannot afford to miss this point either. We can do nothing worth anything in our own strength. And God is not dependent on us and our cleverness to accomplish His purposes. God always does anything That is eternal. In fact, it is is only accomplished by the power of the Spirit. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 15? He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't accomplish anything apart from me. Apart from the Spirit of Christ... We can't accomplish anything. We're totally dependent on Him. So, what does that mean? It means we'd better be walking in obedience to God's Word in such a way that the Spirit of God can work in and through us. But going back to the text, notice that Saul is to be commended for giving glory to God here. He's not taking the credit for himself. And although this will result in his finally becoming king in the fullest sense of the word, he is wise enough at this point to understand that if it were not for the Lord's intervention, this victory never would have been possible. Saul is off to a wonderful start. At this point in his life and reign, he is much like the reformers who cried solely, Deo Gloria, to God alone goes the glory. Only God is worthy of the glory. Now, these two verses also speak volumes to us about how we should handle criticism. At this point, Saul is looking very good in the side of the entire nation. He has led a resounding military campaign against the Ammonites. He has saved the right eyes of all those in Jabesh-Gilead. He has confirmed that he has been endowed with the Spirit of God and is now worthy to be king in every way. He has rejected the idea that his dissenters should be punished and has instead proclaimed that this is to be a day of rejoicing. This is a great recipe here for dealing with rejection and criticism. And remember, when Saul was first criticized, he held his tongue. He did not retaliate or attack them in any way. He simply trusted that God would give him an opportunity to prove them wrong and that is exactly what happens. But now that he has experienced this confirming victory, he's not going to rub their noses in it. He's not going to say, I told you so. He is simply going to be content with his vindication and he's going to point the people to God and give God the glory. Man, what a fantastic start for Saul. And we can learn from this. We can learn from this. Listen, Christians are never to seek revenge. We are always to leave things to the Lord. Anytime we are attacked, we're just just we're just to hold our peace and turn it over to the Lord and He will allow us to be vindicated in His time and in His way. And when we are vindicated, we're not to gloat. We are to simply and humbly give thanks to God. This is the recipe for dealing with criticism. If you are in the right, then you will eventually get the opportunity to show who you really are. You know, in sports, you hear the phrase, prove it on the field. And the idea behind that statement is that it doesn't matter if you're criticized, just go out on the field and prove the critics wrong. This is exactly what Saul did in these early days, and he's to be commended for this. Again, he's off to a great start, and this creates a lot of hope. In Israel. And this leads us to our final point this morning, which is the renewal of sovereignty. After the great victory over Nahash, the prophet Samuel calls the people together at Gilgal. Look with me at verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Now, you may remember or know the significance of the place Gilgal. This was the place where Joshua set up the stones that were taken out of the Jordan River as a memorial to the Lord. It was located near Jericho, close to the Jordan River on the west side. It is the place where God declared that he had rolled away the reproach of Egypt from his people after the men had been circumcised as a sign of their covenant there. But the fact that Samuel is calling them to Gilgal is significant. Dr. Davis says this text is very Gilgalish in that, The name, the place name, occurs three times, and the word there, referring to Gilgal, refers four times in these two verses. By mentioning Gilgal seven times in two verses, the writer makes his point clear, this place is significant. And notice what Samuel has in mind. He wants them to go there and to renew the kingdom Or the kingship. Now, some people might be surprised by this. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute. I thought they already made Saul king and announced his kingship back in chapter 10. What's going on here? Some would say that the phrase in verse 15, there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, means that Saul wasn't really king before this time. But the phrase, renew the kingdom, in verse 14, implies that there had already been a kingdom, but it had become deteriorated in some way. Samuel did not say, let's go to Gilgal and establish the kingdom. He says, let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. This implies that the monarchy had had not gotten off to the best of starts, but now... It's time to reboot it. Now it's time to reestablish it. After all, as soon as Saul was announced as the new king, he went immediately back to his farming. And up to this point, he had not done anything very kingly. From the very beginning, he had had his share of distractors who doubted his ability to lead Israel. And notice in verse 15 it says that all the people made Saul king at Gilgal. This time it's not going to be a few. This time there aren't going to be dissenters. Now it's going to be all the people embracing Saul as king. Even the distractors are going to get on board. Look at verse 15 again. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they, all the people, made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they also offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So what we have here is the final full establishment of Saul as king. Uh, there was really a a three-phase establishment of Saul as king of Israel. First, it was revealed to Samuel by God that he was to serve as the king, and then Samuel privately anointed him. Second, Samuel was declared king at Mizpah. And third, he became king in the fullest sense of the word here at Gilgal, following this mighty Victory over the Ammonites. And notice that their renewal of the kingdom included their renewal of commitment to God. Once again, here in Gilgal, there is spiritual renewal. The people offer sacrifices to God and peace offerings to the Lord. And all this together resulted in great rejoicing. Man, it would be great if we could just stop our study. For the summer, right here. Man, just in on a positive note. We're not going to be able to. But we would have to say here that even though the kingdom did not get off to a roaring start initially, now it has. Now they're rolling. Now things are looking up. At this point, they believe they will win the Super Bowl. But seriously, what lessons can we learn from this passage of Scripture? We desperately need to understand that renewal is something we have to keep coming back to over and over again. Why is that? Because sin and complacency begins to cause spiritual deterioration in our lives. And all of us go through this. It's easy for our zeal and our passion to grow cold. It's easy for us to get to the place where we're like the church at Ephesus, having lost our first love. And I pray that we would never get to the place where we're like the church of Laodicea, having become lukewarm. But the lesson that we need to learn here is that there is always a tendency toward compassion complacency so renewal is always needed you can rightly say that the that the christian life is a life of continual repentance there's always the need for repentance and we are constantly in need of examining our own lives and turning from sin and renewing our commitment to the lord what about you this morning Are you ready to go to Gilgal? Are you ready to renew your commitment to the kingdom of God? Are you truly doing as Jesus commanded? To seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and then trust Him to add to you all the other things of life? Where do you stand with Him today? My prayer is that all of us will examine our own hearts and see what we need to apply this morning as we respond to God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning once again that you would teach us from your Word. Help us to be challenged. Help us to understand today what difference the Spirit makes. That it is so critical that we're walking in obedience to you and your Word so that the Spirit of God has free reign in our hearts and our lives and that uh, we are uh, fully filled with the Spirit and walking under the control of the Spirit so that you can accomplish mighty things through us. And, Lord, we know that uh, you can take uh, even the smallest of things. You can take the uh, shy, timid farmers, and you can transform them. And so, Lord, we know that you can take those today that don't seem to have uh, a lot of... uh, human uh, attributes and and can use those for your purpose and your glory lord we pray that you would help us to uh understand that uh everything is always about our uh walk with you and our submission to you and sometimes that can grow cold and sometimes we can lose our passion and and so we need to keep coming back to gilgal we need to keep coming back to renew our commitment to the kingdom And, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand why that's so important and help us this morning to just apply these truths to our lives. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, they would come to know you this morning. And, Lord, help us as we respond to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.